I've entitled this the, the morning's message, The Mystery of Christ, as we continue our series into Ephesians. You know, the last couple weeks we've done Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, and this week, because we do them in order, it's chapter 3. <laughs> so last week we learned that the gospel was to unite the Jews and Gentiles as, as one people. That was the purpose of the gospel, that, that uh, instead of being two separate people, a people that was not a people would become a people, and they would be one people together. We learned that the gospel should have united the Jews and the and the Gentiles together as one people. And then, began, and Paul begins to explain that we have been forgiven by the mercy of God, and we've been made new by His grace. We've been given something new inside of us, something that we didn't deserve, but a brand new spirit inside of us. And then, something that I found interesting is that he reminded the Ephesians to remember where they come from. You know, and the reason that's so important is if we don't remember where we come from, we can real easily get jaded to what we have right now. You know, if, that we become a little bit uh, uh, jaded to how great we have and what God has done in us. And we kind of think, oh, I guess we've kind of always been this way. But if you take a step back and look at where you were, you can begin to really appreciate what God has done in your life now. But now, in chapter 3, Paul begins to explain the mystery of Christ. And we'll see what that is as we, we dig into that. And as well as his purpose in preaching it. Paul was a steward of the gospel. And then once again, from prison, and he even mentions it in this chapter, he's from prison, he begins to pray for his people. He begins to pray for his disciples. These church in, in Ephesus that he planted. He begins to pray for those people that they would understand what God, what, they, uh, what they've received in Jesus Christ. They would actually have an understanding of it. Because it's one thing to, to look on paper what you have, but it's something entirely different to have a revelation of what we, are, we have in Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead and, and get started. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, For this reason I... Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So we find out again that Paul is a prisoner for Christ. He is, and in this case, he's not saying like I'm a slave to righteousness. He's literally a prisoner right now. He is in jail. He's in a Roman prison right now. And he's writing to, his, to, to, these, to these Gentiles. The, the, truthfully, if you, if you want to do a little cause and effect, the Gentiles are the reason he's in prison. But when he writes them, he's not writing them to blame them for being in prison. He's not writing them with a, a, a sad heart. You know, he's not like, I can't believe I'm going through this and it's all their fault. But Paul took the risk willingly. Paul was willing to even spend time in prison that they would get to know about Jesus. They would be able to develop their own personal relationship because he had something amazing from God. He had a revelation from God and he wanted to share it with them. You know, it's the same attitude that we should have as we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We should want to share it with them. In Colossians 1, 24 through 26, he, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Not only was Paul not upset when he went through these things, but he rejoiced in them because the reason he was doing it was so important. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. You know, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings because I'm, I am making up for the lack in Christ's sufferings. And the first thing when we read that, we're like, what did, you know, my first thought is, what did, what did Jesus lack? You know, I thought Jesus took care of everything. And as far as your salvation, Jesus did. But the one thing that Jesus didn't do when he died on that cross is he didn't preach the gospel to the rest of us. That's our responsibility. That's what was lacking in Christ's afflictions was that he didn't share the gospel because that's our responsibility. And Paul was taking that responsibility very seriously. And he was willing to do whatever it took. Truthfully, Paul wasn't in prison because of the Gentiles. It wasn't the Gentiles that put him there, but it was because that he was a mouthpiece to what God was doing at the time. In Ephesians 2.22, the, the, last chapter, the last verse of the last chapter, it says, In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place by God for the Spirit. Paul was a mouthpiece saying that the Jews and the Gentiles are one and they're being built into one church. And this didn't make the Jews very happy. You see, the Jews didn't really care for the Gentiles at the time because they were, they were unholy. They were heathen. They weren't God's chosen people. And they especially didn't like Paul who was telling the Jews that, that uh, God had a plan for the Gentiles. They didn't like that. He, they didn't like the idea that, that God loved the Gentiles as well. He thought, they thought the Jews were the chosen people and they, didn't, they just didn't like this idea. And that's why they put him in prison. Instead of being united as one people like the gospel was intended to do, the Jews and the Gentiles, or the, the Jews were, were acting with bigotry and racism and jealousy. And, that, and the truth is, not all of them were like that. There were many Jews that turned to Jesus. But there were many who were, and this, this, this attitude was winning out. And truthfully, even the Christian Jews at the time had a tough time with the Gentiles. Remember that, that uh, Peter received a vision from God saying that, no, you know, whatever I say is, is clean. Don't call unclean. He receives the vision. And then he goes and he speaks to the Gentile. So Peter had to be coerced by God to speak to the Gentiles. And then after that, he has to go to the, the council in Jerusalem and he has to argue the case for the Gentiles as well and say, hey, they were filled with the same spirit as us. Obviously, God wants them included. This was a tough sell right then. It made Peter have to fight and it put Paul in prison. But Paul was a steward over this mystery. He was a caretaker for it to the Gentiles. And it was his responsibility, and he took it extremely seriously. And this revelation that he received, we can read about that in Acts 26, 13 through 18, when he had the, the Damascus experience. You know, this, when God came and, and blinded him on the road and said, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? But then down here in... Uh, Let's see. In verse 17, he says, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. The whole purpose of Paul being touched by God was that he was the minister to the Gentiles. He was the steward of the gospel to the Gentiles. And, and he took it serious. So serious, in fact, that he was willing to spend time in prison to make sure that they received what God had for them. And I have to be honest with you, I'm so thankful 
that he took it seriously. And I'm so thankful that God revealed that plan to him and, and that Paul took it seriously. Because you know what? The Bible would be a lot shorter if Paul would have said, you know, if Paul would have acted like Jonah, for instance. <laughs> a lot shorter Bible. We wouldn't have all the stuff that we have. But I want you to know that you're tasked at being a minister of this gospel as well. This isn't just Paul anymore, but we're called to make disciples. We're called to share the gospel. And the question is, what are we willing to endure to make sure that that happens? You know, fortunately, in the United States, we're probably not going to be in prison for sharing the gospel. But that's okay, because we're a lot thinner skinned and we get offended by and hurt by way less than stuff like that. Are you, are you willing to be rejected by sharing the gospel with somebody? I know that's one of our biggest fears. Like, I don't want to go knock on doors and tell people about Jesus because we just know that as soon as we open the door, they're going to you know, punch us in the face and hit us with a bat and kick us out of their house. Even though nothing like that ever happens, we're, we're worried about being rejected because rejection hurts. Are you willing to be laughed at to tell people about the truth of the gospel? Are you willing to put yourself out there to give people a ride to church if they need it, to make sure they can make it? And what if it's hard? What if it means giving up a Saturday or missing a football game? You know, I'm challenged every time I read stuff like this because Paul was willing to sacrifice everything to make sure that this message was shared. It challenges me, and I, in turn, want to challenge you to have that same attitude. In Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, he says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You know, Paul knew what he was about. He knew his stuff. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight. He's saying, when you read this, you should be able to tell by the way I'm writing that I'm not just, just pulling this out of the air and making up a story to tickle your ears. Paul was an apostle, and he had a revelation from God. In 2 Corinthians 11, 5-6, he said, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, you know, the ones, the other apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. You know, I wonder if when Paul got up and spoke, he did like me and messed up his words and he did these different things. But he says, you know, even if I don't speak well, my knowledge, the revelation I have from God is good. And you can see that when I write. You can, you can perceive that when I write, I know what I'm about. He says, even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. You know, Paul was, knew what he was about, and he was writing in such a way that they could understand, that he, he knew that, they, that he had something for them. You know, Paul just wasn't some whack job making up a story, trying to get an extra paycheck, but he, he had a revelation from God. And this mystery is basically God's plan for salvation. For the whole world not just the Jews. You see, the Jews thought that salvation was coming in the form of a Messiah for the Jews. But God's plan for salvation was so much bigger, and it included each and every one of us. 
You see, it was a mystery because it had been written about time and time again in the Scriptures. There was pointers to it. There was hints to it. Jesus was prophesied about. But men didn't understand it. Jesus was fulfillment of God's plan for salvation. And because of what he did and because of the writings of Paul and the other, the other apostles, we have a full revelation of that plan. We don't have to, to, to be confused about what God's going to accomplish. We know now that salvation is for all men, Jews and Gentiles alike. What was once enshrouded in, in, uh, in shadow has now been made plain to us. In Hebrews 10.1, it says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The law sacrificed to be made pure, to be made whole. That was, that was a shadow. It was a type of what was to come. But Jesus came and once and for all took care of sin completely. And now all we're left with is receiving the free gift of salvation. You know, this plan of salvation, this God's salvation, was not just some story that a bunch of guys got together and said, you know what, this sounds good, let's run with it. These apostles and these prophets were inspired. This plan has been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit, even though it wasn't made known to men of other generations. They didn't just make this up, but they were inspired by God. It was revealed to them. The mystery is, is that God loves us all. That there's not just one people group that He likes. There's not one set of people. The mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And that's an incredible thing. And it was a hard hit to the Jews at the time because they thought that they were God's chosen people. In Galatians 3, 7 through 9, it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the, Gentiles, justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, this is that mystery revealed. The mystery that he's talking about here was that the, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and we read about it in Galatians. He says that it is those that are the those that are the faith that are sons of Abraham. And the reason this was such a big deal, like I said, was because it, the Jews thought they were saved because they were born Jews. They thought that they were saved because. They had the luck of the draw when they were born. They didn't get born into, you know, much like in, in America, in a lot of ways we're blessed because we got born into America and not a third world country. The Jews thought that they were, they were covered because they were Jews, that they were saved. But Paul was saying, no, you guys are on equal footing. You guys are, are alike and it's, it's faith that makes you a son of Abraham. Faith that makes you saved. And not, your, not who you were born, the Jew or Greek or Gentile. It doesn't matter where you come from, but it's your faith. Even John the Baptist said, Baptist said this in Matthew 3.9, Do not presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Being a son of Abraham, being a Jew, did not guarantee their salvation, even though they thought that it did. 
But the Jews and the Gentiles are now on equal footing. And that's incredible. That's incredible news for us who are, everyone in this room is Gentile, <laughs> is a Gentile. Now it's true, the Jews are still God's chosen people. And they do receive some benefit in this. If you want to spend some time in, in Romans, Paul talks about the benefit of, of them having received the word of God and received the law and what that means. But as, in regards to salvation, we're all on equal footing. And then Paul goes to show in Galatians that this isn't a new thing. This, is, this has been since day one, since Abraham. It says, it says that before, God said to the, before to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. The whole plan of God was always to be blessed in Abraham, the man of faith. And if you go in Romans 3, chapter 28 through 30, it says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? This was an interesting question to pose to the Jews. And to us, it makes total sense. Yeah, he's the God of everybody. But to them, they thought God was their God. Yes, all of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, the Jewish people, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. You know, they're on the same footing. That's the mystery of God, is that we're all equal. That there's not one chosen people. There's not, that we all have the same opportunity to be saved, to know God, to have a relationship with Him. And this was tough for the Jewish people. And I think it's easy for us, the funny thing is, it's easy for us to look back and say, why were they so upset? I mean, this should have been good news that other people were included, that, that God had a plan for everybody and not just the Jewish people. Anybody ever thought something like that? You just don't get what's going on? Yeah, I've thought that. And as I was thinking that a little bit high and mighty, God goes, well, what about this? God has a tendency to, to do those kind of things with me. First, the Jewish people weren't saved yet. They hadn't had a new spirit placed inside of them. They were still acting fleshly. And I imagine they took that God was giving this gift to the Gentiles. I imagine they took that as a rejection of them. I imagine that, that somehow they felt slighted because now it was being offered to everybody. Maybe they didn't feel as special as they were before. And truthfully, even as Christians, even as those who have been saved, we can still have those feelings inside of us. How many have ever received a gift from somebody, a gift just for you, and it makes you feel special, right? You're like, man, this person went out of their way just, for, they gave me something, and that makes me feel special. But what if that same person took that gift, and he gave it to everybody in the room? Even though the gift is the same gift, even though the, the thought and the attitude behind it is exactly the same, it feels less special to you. You feel a little bit, you don't feel as unique. You don't feel as, as, like maybe a little bit slighted, especially if he gives it to you first and then an hour later gives it to everybody else. You're like, wait a minute. I thought I was special. What happened? I imagine that's how the Jews felt. And even as Christians, we can feel this way. How many of you have watched somebody in your workplace get a raise? And instead of rejoicing for them, you feel a little bit like, wait a minute, why didn't I get a raise? Well, what if somebody gets a, one of your friends gets a new car? You have a little bit of jealousy inside you. Why, why can't I get a new one? I mean, what's going on with them? 
Or maybe they find a great job. Like, man, I'm stuck doing the same old job when they got this awesome new job. And that jealousy starts to creep in. I imagine this is how the Jews feel. And the reason I'm bringing this up, because that's my first thought. I was like, man, why, why weren't they excited for this? And then God's like, you do the same thing. Why do you expect them to act different than you? Sorry, God, you're right. <laughs> but as Christians, we should rejoice with other people. In Romans 12, 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Don't feel jealous, but rejoice with them and weep with those who weep. We are one body. We are one. And we should, we'd be good to remind ourselves of that as things like this are going on in our lives. In Ephesians 3, 7, he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. Paul was given a stewardship to minister the gospel according to grace. And the grace that was given to Paul is the same grace that was given to each and every one of us. We were given something we didn't deserve. We were given a new life inside of us. As soon as you accept Jesus Christ into your life, the grace of God changes you on the inside. The old man is removed and a new man is put in. The heart of stone is removed and replaced with the heart of flesh. You were made brand new. Who you were is not who you are anymore. And Paul had that new spirit and life inside of him. And he was able to minister to the Jews, or to the Gentiles, the very same thing that he was killing Christians for the day before. Paul had changed. Anybody can look at Paul's life and see that he had changed. He was the person that, that uh, held up the robes when Stephen was stoned to death. He held all the clothing for them. He's the one that was dragging people out of their homes and killing Christians. Paul was a bad dude. And God changed him. He made a, a difference in his life. And not only had he been forgiven for his past failings, because that's God's mercy is that he forgives you, but he had been completely remade and brand new, and that's God's grace when you're given a new spirit inside of you. You see, it's stories like this that should make you just feel encouraged if you ever think to yourself, Man, I am too bad for God to save. I've, if God knew the things that I've done, there's no way He would take me. If you ever feel like that you are too bad for God to touch to make a difference in your life, just take a look at Paul's life. Paul, at one time, was horrible to the Christians. Not only was he doing terrible things, he was killing people, dragging them out of their home, having them imprisoned. Not only was he doing these things, but they were not only just directed at people, they were directed at God. He was attacking God's church. That's a, that's a pretty intense thing to do. I mean, as far as sins go, I would put that up high on the list. And he was very good at it, apparently. He even mentions this when he's talking to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, The saying is trustworthy, trust trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul recognized where he came from. He remembered where he came. He realized what God did in his life. And I want you to know if Paul could, if God can save Paul, he can save anybody in this world today. There is nobody that can't be touched by God. And then we find that not only did Paul introduce the Gentiles to salvation, 
but he also talks about the giving me by the working of his power. He begins to introduce the Gentiles to the power of God as well. You know, the same power that worked in, in, in Paul works inside each and every one of us. We have the same power available to us. In Ephesians 1, 18 through 19, in, in the first chapter we looked at, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. You see, as believers, we're not only just saved, we're not only saved to be put in, you know, we're going to make it to heaven someday. And a lot of, for a lot of believers, that's what Christianity is. I'm, I'm saved and I'm going to make it to heaven someday. But I want you to know that it's so much more than that. His power that worked in Paul, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, is available to each and every one of us. And that's an amazing thing. In Ephesians 3, 8-10 it says, To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Like I said earlier, God's plan for salvation, this idea that the Jews and the Gentiles would be one, was at one time unsearchable. I had to look up what, what they were meaning by unsearchable. What that means is that it was unable to be known. Unsearchable just means unable to be known. The, the same thing they were using like mystery before. It was unable to be known by men. And it turns out that the last time that that word was used regularly was in the 1800s, so I can be forgiven for not knowing what he was trying to say. But it's Paul reiterating again that this plan was a mystery to people. And now he, he was given grace to preach it to the Gentiles, to let them know. And he says, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. His job was to bring it to light. God had given hints in Scripture. God had given hints in prophecy. Jesus was spoken about. They knew that there would be a Savior. They would be a Messiah. They knew that a people who were not a people would become a people, but they just didn't know how it was going to work itself out. The Jews believed that Jesus was going to come as a political king. He was going to come as a political Savior and save them from the, the, the hand of the Romans at the time. And it's true, he came back as a king, but he came as king of all. And not a political king, but he came back as a heavenly king. And he didn't just make it better for them on earth, but he made it better for us for all eternity. So Paul's job was to explain this, to unmask this mystery. And we find that the church is a demonstration of God's power. It says that the church is the manifold wisdom of God. And it might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You see, the church, the people, us, the church of Christ, not just our church, but the church as a whole, the body of Christ, were designed to bring eternal glory to God. And it was always God's plan to build His church. 
In Ephesians 1, 9 through 12, it said, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be praised to his glory. This was his eternal purpose, was to build the church. Jews and Gentiles united in one body, the body of Christ. And as Christians, our goal should be to determine to walk in our role and our purpose in this greater purpose, the church of God. And the church of God is the bride and the body of Christ. That's why it's amazing to me when we find that people are like, oh, I believe in God, I just don't believe in church. I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And it's true, you can believe in God and be saved without going to church, but you have a greater purpose. And the purpose of God was to build His church. The manifold wisdom of God was to build His church. We were talking a little bit about this on Wednesday, but you know, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. And how many know that if, if you didn't get along with my wife and you were always talking bad about my wife and every time we got together you just moaned and complained about my wife, you and I probably wouldn't have a relationship for very long. It's tough to have a relationship with somebody that's always going to be talking bad about your wife and how, you know, I, 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 I believe in you and I think you're a great guy, but your, your, your wife, she's something else. And I, if that would happen, it would destroy our relationship. You know, when, when Christians get together and they talk bad about the church, that's precisely what they're doing. You can't have a relationship with Jesus and hate his wife, hate his bride. And then Paul goes on to say that the church is teaching angels. That's what it's saying here. The wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. You see, the angels, they're created beings just like us. They're not omnipotent like God. They don't know everything. And they recognize the power of God because they were there, they were watching Him create the earth and when He spoke, things came into being and they recognized the power of God. But what they're learning here is what Paul calls the manifold or, manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God. They're actually seeing God's plan for salvation come into effect. They didn't know what God was doing. They didn't know the mind of God as he's putting this plan into effect. They saw what he was doing, but not how it was going to work out. And the Bible says that, that as the church is being built, the angels are learning what this wisdom of God is. Now they're starting to get what God had accomplished in us. The Bible says that the cross is foolishness to those who are unsaved. But it's the, the angels are learning the wisdom of God through his church. The cross and salvation is foolishness to those who are unsaved. To men who are learned, they look at that and they're like, that doesn't make any sense. This is just silly. But when the angels see it, they're like, they're amazed at God's wisdom. They're seeing what he's doing. They're, they're recognizing what God's doing. And God is using us to teach angels. And even we can learn a thing or two when we look at his church, I think. You see, when man creates a religion, when man creates a God, that always works out like this. 
There's a God we're trying to serve, and we're trying to be good enough to spend eternity with Him or be saved and all these things. And, and we begin to write out rules and regulations of what we have to do to be clean enough, to be good enough. You can take a look at all of them, Buddhism, Islam, all of them. It's all about what you can do to be good enough to be with God. But the truth is, God's wisdom does not equal ours. God thinks so much, you know, his thoughts are not, our thoughts are not his thoughts. And we, do, we can't know the mind of, his, of him. We can't understand what he's doing because it's so far above us that it doesn't make any sense. You know, if we were to make a religion, it's all about rules and regulations. But we see Christianity comes and it's completely different than man, anything man ever made. People ask me, how do you know that, that Christianity is the real one? Well, look how different it is than all of them. All the ones that man made look like this. All of them look like this. But the, but the one true religion, the one true God, is different. Instead of us trying to be good enough to get to Him, He came to us. There was a farmer once who was sitting out under a tree because it was hot, and he's looking across his pumpkin field, and he sees these massive pumpkins growing on the vines. And he's like, Man, I wonder why God would put a system like that into place. Why would he put such big, heavy things on such a frail vine, the vine that can't even hold it up? And then he looks at the tree, and he sees the walnuts growing on this tree, and he's like, man, why would God put such a small thing on this tree? I mean, these branches can hold men up, and he's got such a tiny thing growing on it. Why would God do that? And then all of a sudden a strong breeze comes in and a walnut's knocked off the tree and it hits him in the head. And he goes, now I recognize the wisdom of God. Why he doesn't put heavy things in a tree? The wisdom of of God is not like ours. You know, God's thought things through. And he's teaching us and he's teaching angels. And 1 Peter 10-12 it says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you. Though those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. This is that mystery concerning this salvation. Like we said, the, this, is, this is now Peter speaking about this, and he's saying the same things. The writers of the Old Testament, they were looking, they were searching, they were inquiring carefully, and they were reading about Jesus, and they knew he would come, but they still didn't quite get it. They didn't understand. They prophesied under the power of the Holy Spirit, and they wanted to know when the Christ would be here. But see, we have an advantage that they do not. We don't have to search. We don't have to wonder because Jesus has already come. These, this mystery has already been revealed to us. You know, we, a lot of people would say, man, I wish I lived in the time of Moses. I wish I lived in the time of, of Jesus. And oh, things would be so much better. You would see how I believe. But they had it a lot harder. They didn't have Jesus. They didn't know yet. They didn't have the revelation that we have yet. And it says that they didn't even understand what they were prophesying, but it was revealed to them that they were not serving not themselves, but us. 
those prophecies, all those things were for our benefit so that we could learn and see that the Christ is true and that He came to save us. And then we go on to see that even Paul mentions the angels. You see, as the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about his church being built. He says these are things into which angels long to look. Just in case you thought Paul was talking crazy and it's just in one place. The angels are looking at what God's doing and they're amazed and they're, they're seeing what's happening in us. And I imagine... You know, the angels don't have it the same as we do. We're, we're higher than angels. We're thought of higher than angels. God has given us free will. He's given us the ability to, to love Him and have a relationship with Him. And these are things the angels long for. We have something that even they do not. So we should be even more interested in these things than the angels because at least we can partake in them. This should be our desires to know God and to build His church, to be one body. In Ephesians 3.11-13, what time is it? Alright, let's pick it up. Ephesians 3.11-13 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, for which is your glory. Once again, we see that the salvation for all and the building of the church is according to God's eternal purpose. From the beginning of time. God is all-knowing. God is infallible. Jesus was always the plan. God's plan was always to unite the entire people of the world into one body under Him. Oftentimes, we look at, at what happened with the law and we're like, man, the law was plan A. It didn't work out. So Jesus must have been plan B. But if we want to make that argument, then basically what we're saying is that God made a mistake. We're saying that you know, he gave it his best shot. It didn't work out, so he came up with another plan. Basically, at that point, you're arguing that he isn't really God at all. God is infallible. God knows the, the beginning and the end. He knows everything that's going on. He knew this would happen. This was his plan from the beginning. And really, the reason why it had to work out the way it is is because of us. He knew if he just sent Jesus in the first place, we'd just completely reject him and begin to tell him, now we can do it on our own. The law came to show us that we couldn't. And then it's we find out that we're able to have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. Do you know how amazing it is that we have direct access through God, that we can approach His throne with boldness and confidence? That we can stand before Him and have a relationship with Him, that we can talk with Him, that we can communicate. We don't have to go through priests. We don't have to to do all these special rituals. I mean, in the Old Testament, every time somebody saw the angel of the Lord when God manifested themselves to them, they all thought they were going to die. The privilege that we have to have that relationship with them is amazing. And then it's even more amazing to think that God doesn't stick His nose up at you. I mean, God is so high above us, yet He still is our friend. He'll spend time with us. He'll talk to us. He listens when we talk to Him. He answers our prayers. When, if you think about it, there's no reason that He should. He's so far above us. And then our first thought is that 
Well, maybe he's just having compassion for us, the, the weaker of the two. You know, he's just feeling sorry for us. So come on and have a, have a talk with us. He's, or maybe we're thinking that he's overlooking our shortcomings. But the truth is, when God sees you, he's not overlooking your shortcomings. He does love us. But the reason that we can approach him, the reason that we can spend time in his presence is because we are clean. We've been made pure. We've been made holy. We are brand new in Jesus Christ. You know, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our failings and overlook at them and overlook them and let us into his presence. When, he, when God sees us, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see your failings because as far as he's concerned, they don't exist. They've been taken care of. They've been dealt with. You are clean, you are pure, you are holy in Jesus Christ. And then Paul begins to tell them, hey, don't lose heart over what I'm going through. It was worth it. Paul recognizes that this, is, this was his job. This is what he wanted to do, and he was willing to do whatever. He would spend time in prison if it meant that one person would get saved. That's why I was rejoicing when I read this story of of the, uh, the, the man that Pastor Lath was, was speaking to. You know, if, if we send thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars over there to them, and they're working hard at reaching those people, if just one person gets saved, it's worth it. If just one person gives their life to God, it's worth it. And Paul thought the same thing. Don't worry about me. Don't, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. It's for you. It was for your glory. I wanted to make sure that you were glorified in Jesus Christ. And in chapter, uh, verses 14 through 16, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Inner being. Inner being. Crying out loud. So once again, he iterates that now we're part of, of one family through, through whom God is the Father. You see, he let us know that Jews and Gentiles are one. We all have access to salvation. He's been explaining the mystery this whole time, but then he begins to pray. And he says that, I pray that you would be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, inner being cannot say that word today according to his riches you see after he had told us these things now he wanted us to to take hold of them paul's praying that now i've given you the information but i want you to take hold of them by faith by revelation i want you to to get this stuff according to his riches and glory that it be granted that you be strengthened with power receive the the power that he was talking about as we continue on, he says that, that <clears throat> with the power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all fullness of God. I've told you about it, and I want you to get it. He begins to pray that they would have revelation of it, they would receive it in its fullness. You know, this is the second prayer in these letters that we've already gotten to from Paul. 
in chapter 1, he began to pray for him. This is what he prayed in chapter 1. In verse 17 through 18, he says, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, it's when Paul prays, you very rarely see Paul praying for the physical things for people. He's not saying, oh, I pray that you guys will have houses and roofs over your head and all these things. Not that it's bad to pray for those things. But the focus of Paul is always praying for the spiritual needs of his people. And I believe that he does this because when you pray for the spiritual needs of a people, how many of the physical things work themselves out? The physical is secondary, secondary to our spiritual health. And in truth, the Bible says that in Matthew 6.33, that if you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things will be added to you. You know, if we would pray for each other, that we would have enlightenment, that we would grow, the rest of it will just come in line. And we see that, that Paul does those very things when he prays for his people. And once again, he says that, that uh, I want you to, to know that you will have Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. That's an incredible honor and privilege to have God living in your heart. And once again, proof that you are pure and holy because God couldn't live inside you if you weren't pure and holy. You would just die because light cannot mix with darkness. And he says that we're to be rooted in love. He's praying that they would be rooted and grounded in love. And as Christians, that's what should be our identity. Love should be what defines us. We care about one another because of love. We join together in the vision of this church because of our love for God and our love for one another. We preach the gospel to the lost because of our love for them. We have compassion instead of judgment on those who are lost because of love for them. We worship God because we love Him. And the truth is, we can love in the first place because He first loved us. Love defines us. His love for us resulted in our salvation and our love for others should be what identifies us. People should know who we are because of our love for one another is what the scripture says. And then this one amazes me as you begin to read these words. He says that I pray that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth and to know the love of Christ. I began to think about this, that God's love, the love of Christ is so big that Paul has to pray that we'd have the strength to understand it. Take a minute for that to sink in. You can't get it on your own. You don't have the mental capacity. And he's like, I pray that you have the strength to just to get a little bit of it, to figure it out a little bit, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Basically, this love surpasses knowledge. There's, there's nothing that we can do to describe it. There is no units of measurement that will work to measure Christ's love. It's, it surpasses knowledge. But he's like, you know what? I, I'm praying that you have the strength to comprehend it at least a little bit, to understand the breadth, the width, the length, the depth. And then he says that you would all be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, the reason he has to pray this is because there's a possibility that you won't be filled with all the fullness of God. And I can tell you it's not because God's holding back. God's fullness is available to you. But what he's praying is that you wouldn't do stupid stuff to keep God out of your life. 
Let God fill you to your fullness. Let him in. Don't push him away. God's a perfect gentleman. If you push him away, he'll wait at the door knocking, but he won't come in unless you let him in. And then we'll go ahead and finish up right here. In Ephesians 3, 20-21, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Good memory verse. Write this down. Remember it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. The story of a young boy who went to a, to a local store with his mom. And as they're checking out at the counter, there's this bucket of, of suckers. And the, the guy at the counter says, you know what, reach in there and, and take out a handful of suckers and you can just have it. And the boy was kind of shy and he didn't reach in there. So finally the store owner reaches in there and he takes out a big old handful of suckers and gives it to the boy. And as they're walking out, the mama's like, I don't understand. Why were you so shy when he said you could take a handful of suckers? And the boy simply replied, his hands are bigger than mine. <laughs> that's, that's the way it is with God. He is able to do far more abundantly all than we ask or think. His hands are bigger than ours. And it says, To Him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, the mystery of salvation was that God united all people into one body. We all have the same availability. None of us are shut out or left out. And it was to unite these people in one body to build His church. So let's be a part of that. And be a part of Him to His glory for all generations. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.